Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Andante Vineyard. It's January 12th, 2019. I'm here with Joe Allen and Karen Saul. And we're going to start you off by asking you, why wine? You want to go first, Joe? Oh, why <laughs> wine? Um, well, that's a good question. I guess I should tie in at some point. I actually grew up uh, in Southern Nevada in the desert. Uh, was never exposed to wine at all. Actually, it was a farming community, so we <clears throat> I worked in dairy farms a little bit, FFA, had some farming exposure, um, which I realized was hard work and wanted to get away from. <laughs> uh, but it was also a Mormon or an LDS community, so nobody drank wine or coffee, and you know there were lots of restrictions, so I just was not exposed to it um, at all. Went off to college and got and education and wine was really not in the picture at all. Mm -hmm. uh, focused on education, I uh, got a degree in medicine and became a physician, ear, nose and throat. So that's my day job. And then um, uh, uh, wine did come into the picture though because I have partners who drink wine and uh, was around wine a lot and was kind of embarrassing, you know, it's kind of like what do you drink and uh, you know you got any coke or something <laughs> and then um, uh, and then I just I f fell away from that faith and didn't didn't make sense to me anymore so I, I started going a different direction and and uh, it was actually in a, a Christmas party where one of my partners just offered me a glass of wine kind of out of the blue kind of knew my story a little bit and and I said, sure, and had that glass of wine, which led to some very interesting complications. <laughs> and uh, so that marriage ended. And, uh, and then I met Karen so, um, and began starting to drink wine and so forth. So uh, there's more to that story, but maybe Karen should talk for a little bit. <laughs> so I did grow up in a home where my parents drink wine occasionally. And I think my very first exposure to it was probably as a um, young teenager. My parents would often drink like Mogan David. And for holidays, we had some fancy like cut glass wine glasses and I'd get like two tablespoons of something, you know, <laughs> to go with whatever the special meal was. And, um, and so, uh, Anyway, the, the reason we ended up here making wine was not because either one of us obviously had grown up thinking that we were gonna be winemakers someday or, or even that we were gonna have a vineyard someday. Mm -hmm. It was more because we wanted to sort of get back to the land, to borrow a cliche. We, we had both grown up, and I guess I'll just speak for myself. Um, I grew up here in the Willamette Valley. I was born in Salem, raised in Salem. And I lived in town, but I had grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins uh, out in the farmland. Mm -hmm. And I spent my childhood uh, 
chasing around in the woods, getting poison oak a couple times every summer, and riding bicycles on gravel roads and climbing into culverts and making forts and building tree houses. And, and so um, I too went off and got an education and became a lawyer and practiced law in Portland for uh, close to 30 years. And in about 2009, I think, Joe and I both realized that we wanted to have some land in the countryside. And we got serious enough about it that we engaged a real estate agent and said, draw a 30-minute circle around Salem Hospital, because Joe as a physician has to be able to respond on call within 30 minutes, and show us some properties. Mm -hmm. and, and they showed us several, none of which really interested us. And then we learned about this one. And um, I can go into sort of that whole story of finding the vineyard for the first time maybe in a minute, but the reason we ended up growing grapes on this wonderful site is because nothing else would grow. And I mean, it's very shallow uh, sedimentary soil. Mm -hmm. It's chaholpum for the most part. Mm -hmm. We have a little hazel air and a few other things too, but it's mostly chaholpum. And, and it, it was in a conservation reserve program because it really wasn't farmable for conventional row crops and things like, you know, there's fescue on the flat field just north of us, but the same farmer uh, had tried to farm this land and he said, you can't grow fescue there. <laughs> so um, as we tried to decide whether to really buy this and take that huge plunge or not, it's like, what would you do with it? And you look around and we had Van Duzer, we had Left Coast, mm -hmm. Uh, we had Huntington Hill just to the west of us, and the obvious answer was grapes. Mm -hmm. And so we really thought long and hard about were we going to become grape farmers, vineyard owners, and, uh, and obviously we decided we would do that, and I for one have never been happier. But anyway, I'll stop there and we can circle back to some of those other topics. Well, sure, let's see. Yeah, yeah well, well, part of that, as I mentioned, I grew up in a farming community mm -hmm. and knew how much work it was. Uh, but uh, my father, grandfather, there was a history of farming and blacksmithing and mm -hmm. fixing and doing things. And so I'm, I'm kind of a fix-it person and... and um, and there's a lot of fixing to go on, <laughs> to go on in a place like this. And uh, so we investigated, we, we, we bought the land and uh, signed up for classes at Chemeketa, which is in Salem, which is convenient. And we took the classes together and learned about farming, viticulture, and, and how to you know, manage a, a vineyard, you know, those details. And, um, <clears throat> and at the same time, we started, uh, started planting. Sure. And the local farmer uh, uh, said, hey, if you're going to do that, uh, I like the way this guy farms Huntington Hill next door. You might want to talk to him. Mm -hmm. His name was Sterling Fox. And uh, he has quite a bit of experience in the, you know, viticulture area. And so we eventually met him. And one thing led to another. And, uh, <clears throat> and we laid out uh, some vineyard property and, and started planting. So... No, that was 2011. So 2009 was when we um, 
found the property. We were actually driving home from Utah with a U-Haul trailer on the back of a rig. And, and um, Joe said the real estate agent found this piece of property that he'd really encourage us to look at. So we literally drove the U-Haul to <laughs> the corner of Smithfield and 22. And my father, who is now 88, um, met us there and picked us up in his car. And we drove up to Morse Road and there was nothing here uh -huh. except this gorgeous wild 42 acres. Um, there is a beautiful pond, but you couldn't even see it at the mm -hmm. time. It was just, it was, it was covered in brush. And um, the only sort of civilization was a water meter. And that's actually very important here because we're in the Perrydale Domestic Water Association uh, system and they're not granting new water meters. So that was, that was a good thing to have. Sure. But we literally had to um, sort of, it, it felt, it was very much bushwhacking up to the top of the hill. You felt like you were swimming through vetch and, um, and you know, a million other things. But the vetch in particular just like grabs you. It's like, don't go. <laughs> um, the owner called it Perfect Hill. The pond is actually uh, registered with the Oregon Water Resources Department as Perfect Hill Reservoir. <laughs> and we got up to the top and looked around and it was magical. Mm -hmm. So um, we did a lot of due diligence and we ultimately did decide that we'd buy the property, which we did in early April of 2010. And then we, um, um, we hired Sterling pretty, pretty early on. And we had already made a plan to go to France with some family members. So we ended up going to Burgundy and Bordeaux and we, and we left this hill behind with instructions to peel excavation to, mm -hmm. to help us mm -hmm. get a road in while we were gone. And um, I think they started the work while we were gone and then, and then we came back and saw the end of it. So that was 2010 and then, yes, 2011 we started, uh, I took the general viticulture class, Joe I think took it online, and that spring and summer we started planning our first six blocks. So it was four, it was uh, four acres of Pinot Noir and uh, one acre of Chardonnay and one acre of Sauvignon Blanc. And um, Sterling said, so what do you want to plant? And we says, well, of course we want to plant some Pinot Noir. It's beautiful and that's what everybody does in the valley. But we'd like to plant some other things too. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, what do you like to drink? <laughs> and I said, I really like to drink Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> and I'll tell you, the Sauvignon Blanc, when we planted it, I think there were, there was almost nothing in the valley. Um, Croft Vineyard outside of Monmouth mm -hmm. had maybe 30 acres in, but almost no one else had planted any. And it's done beautifully here, as, as has everything. Um, so that took us up through 2011. And yes, then we took the vineyard practices class together at Chemeketa, where you basically do a whole year. You start in the winter and you learn winter pruning. You go all the way through you know, the season until you, you harvest the grapes in the fall. Mm -hmm. And we learned a lot. Sure. I remember one thing about that class. Uh, uh, McDonald. Al McDonald. Al McDonald, mm -hmm. a, a legend. Uh, he uh, taught this class on general viticulture and this and that. And, and, and I, as I recall, the, he switched it around so the last 
The last chapter had to do with the business aspect of having a vineyard, and he said he did it that way because if you started out in this profession planning to make money or doing a real business plan, you would be disappointed, and that is absolutely, that is absolutely true. <laughs> you know, we are, uh, so there is that. Anyone who goes in this, it has to be a labor of love to some extent. It has mm -hmm. to turn into that because, uh, you know, otherwise you either end up working for someone else or uh, it's very hard to make ends meet. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, been, it's been fun. I guess it has been a labor of love. That's, mm -hmm. that's kind of the way to put it. Mm -hmm. I, as, I, as I mentioned, I didn't even know what wine tasted like until, you know, well the into 40s. my 40s. <laughs> and uh, so there's a lot of catching up to do. And, um, but, you know, we've been fortunate. The Sauvignon Blanc is not widely planted here and it has done extremely well. So that's been mm -hmm. sort of our calling card. Mm -hmm. uh, most people really like that. It's not your typical Sauvignon Blanc. So that's been a, something special that we offer that not too many people do. Sure. Uh, oh, I wanted to mention when we came to this place and one of the times we hiked up to the top, literally, as Karen said, bushwhacking through this, there was nothing here but weeds and, and overgrowth and blackberries and, and volunteer trees and, you know, it's just everything. Nothing that you see here was, it was here. wild and really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we had friends, <laughs> including an architect who had, has sort of been involved off and on. And we hiked to the top of the hill and it was, it was beautiful and it was near sunset and we're, we're up there like looking around, it's a very nice view and these birds started flying in and uh, if you look around at our label you'll see a bird, a white egret, which at one time was almost extinct. In mm -hmm. fact, the, the Audubon Society uses the egret as their symbol because they literally were killed off to almost extinction. So, we, we were up there and it must have been, I don't know, August or something, late summer, and it's sunset and these birds start flying in like right by us and it was just like someone was saying, welcome to, welcome to the neighborhood. And it was, it was like one of those defining moments that says like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe this is it. We may not have even made the decision to buy yet. I don't remember, but it was, it was a kind of a little defining moment of and then we eventually found the pond down there, which which couldn't even see the pond. Didn't even know there was a pond, and it's well, two and a half there acres. She said there was a pond, but yeah, you 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 yeah, you a two and a half tell. acre pond that we literally <laughs> could you could not see. That's amazing. Uh, you'll see it now if you drive up there. Yeah. Uh, so that's how we got the logo, and then the word on Dante, uh, a curious word uh, that not everyone is familiar with. But if you've taken any music or dance or whatever on Dante's and used it as a musical term meaning a slower or walking pace, slow down, relax, uh, as opposed to faster tempos that, uh, and, and that's the nice thing about a winery and a vineyard, you can sort of, it can define your character a little bit. You can mm -hmm. say this is who we are, this is kind of what we like to do and our tasting room right now is pretty rudimentary and we taste here in the middle of the barrels and it's quite pleasant. Other places are very upscale or formal and you'll see all everything in between. There are many places much rougher than ours. So uh, we're sort of a, in, a, in that middle of the road that's 
maybe dying out a little bit, but just a mom and pop sort of mm-hmm. uh, organization with um, with a winemaker. And I suppose we should tell the winemaker story at some point. Do you want to tell the winemaker story, or yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> before we get to that specific, I guess a little bit more about how we actually got here. So in 2014, we planted um, some more vines about, where did we put in? I think we got it up to about 10 acres at that point. So we started with six, we planted four more. Um, then we started planting on the north side of the barn, which wasn't here yet. Um, so now we've got about 15 acres in, and um, you need, you need so lawyer by background, I can get a little hyper-technical, I'll try not to do that, but for land use purposes, you need to have 15 acres of vines in to be able to put in a winery without a conditional use permit. And so we, we knew at some point as we got into this that, um, that we needed needed or wanted, wanted is probably a better word, that we, that we wanted to make wine and we wanted to make it on an increasingly more serious basis. So mm-hmm. our very first vintage was 13. And it all came that year from our original block of um, Dijon triple uh, seven vines that are planted, that were planted in 11. Mm-hmm. So it was the third year, we had a very small crop and um, those vines were actually probably one year older than the other Pinot Noir because they were in gallon-sized buckets when we planted them instead of the little four mm-hmm. pots or quart, quarts maybe. Anyway, um, that was the year of the monsoon. So uh, we, it really was a stray monsoon, I think. <laughs> so, um, so we'd had these images of you know our first harvest and having this lovely you know spread on a table and all the stuff you see in the magazines and instead <laughs> we got a torrential downpour. I Joe was at work that day, but I was out here with Sterling and his crew, and we didn't need a very big picking crew because it was just one acre we were going for. Um, but we literally poured I think seven inches of water out of the picking bins that had all. Uh, fallen over the weekend and so and Pinot Noir has a very thin skin plus it was really young vines very very tender fruit and so between the rain and uh, and some birds and some um, yellow jackets we ended up picking about a thousand pounds about a half a ton I think mm-hmm. um, oh we also picked a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc that year but those, we, we, it was just personal consumption. We still have some of the Pinot Noir in our cellar because we had one oak barrel, 100% new oak. And so all of this brand new wine went into one, you know, very oaky barrel. And it tastes good. Um, we're hoping that 10 years from now it's going to be just awesome and people will want that. <laughs> <laughs> But, but anyway, so that was, that was the first year. And, and until we actually tricked this out as a winery, we were doing pay-as-you-go. I mean, we, we had the cash to buy the land. We paid cash for all of the improvements. We, um, we were both married once before and had careers once before, so we had a little bit of finances stashed away. We, we sold a house I used to own to build the shell of the barn. 
But then when the time came to actually turn it into a winery, it's like, okay, this isn't going to be pay-as-you-go anymore. <laughs> you know, are we willing to borrow to buy the equipment? We mm -hmm. bought all of our equipment new because we wanted it to work <laughs> and we wanted it to last for 30 plus years and um, and and so I mean the equipment alone is you know well over three hundred thousand dollars just for the equipment and yes every year you need to buy more barrels um, there was there was a lot of concrete that was poured you know fancy floor drains we figured if we were going to do it, we were going to do it right. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we, we uh, own a lovely vacation home at the beach that we are trying to sell right now <laughs> because we decided we'd rather have a winery than a beach house. <laughs> and um, I mean, that's, that's the reality of it mm -hmm. is it is an expensive business and there's a lot of expensive infrastructure that goes into it. And there's a very long delay between planting a grape or even, say, ordering the material from a nursery and putting a deposit down to mm -hmm. when it's in the bottle and mature and ready to go to market. Sure. I mean, years. Mm -hmm. So we learned that and we have accepted that. And truly, every once in a while, we look at each other and say, are we crazy yet? <laughs> I yes, think, we were crazy. But I think we're both happy we did it. I am. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, wine, uh, again, my, if, if I had scripted my life, wine was not anywhere close to my... Uh, my life plan which has taken a lot of interesting turns and that's the nice thing about living a life is you uh, you sort of take it as it comes and and people come into your life and people are born and people die and you have children hopefully sometimes and grandchildren and and uh, and and to tie back to that you, you plant a vineyard at least at our age, not for yourself, or not even necessarily for your children, but sometimes for your grandchildren, because mm -hmm. it takes a very long time, and uh, for it to actually make money to make sure. to make money. And, and the nice thing about many wines, including our wines, is they get better the longer they're in the bottle too. Sure. So if you have a, a way to store wine, um, then then ultimately, uh, hopefully, it pays off. We only make. Well, this year we're going to make about a thousand cases, so we're still what you would call a small producer. We have extra barrels in here because our winemaker, Kelly Kidney, um, who is fabulous, um, she has decided over the um, last few months to bring her own personal brand, which is Mad Violets, and a couple other clients of hers mm -hmm. in, and they are essentially custom crush clients. Mm -hmm. So we haven't made uh, 2018 was our first vintage, and we were only making our own wine and some white wine for Kelly. Um, and and so, I'm not even sure exactly what the total case production of that would have been, but it's probably still around, maybe a little over a thousand. Mm -hmm. And um, and then 
And then over the winter, we've brought in the uh, barrels for her other clients. And so 2019 will be the first year that we're actually making wine for, um, it'll be four or five different brands, including our own. And, and that's going to make the economics of the winery pencil out a lot better. Because sure. we built it to be able to make a lot more wine than we're making now. And our, our ultimate goal um, is to be able to keep all of our fruit and turn it all into wine. And that will probably produce maybe 3,000 to 3,500 cases. And I think in the Oregon wine industry, anything 5,000 or less is considered small. So we will forever be small. Um, and we're perfectly fine with that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I took the, I, so I went on after, after Joe had to go back to doing ear, nose, and throat medicine and took quite a few more case, uh, classes mm -hmm. at Shemekata. And the last one I took was last January as we were starting this project, I took the uh, winery process planning and design class. And it was invaluable. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things, probably the most valuable thing from that um, was uh, our instructor, Jessica Sandrock, asked us to build an Excel spreadsheet with the equipment. And so I have a spreadsheet that is awesome, but it's got, it's got all the equipment, how much we need, what do we own, what do we still need to buy, how much power does it draw? Because mm. we were initially going to try and do this off the grid. We didn't put electric power in here until this year. <laughs> and I mean, that's one of the reasons it's you know expensive and we ended up having to borrow to finish it is bringing three-phase power up from Smithfield Road, which is over half a mile, cost us probably at least $150,000. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Um, but we realized, again, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right we couldn't run out of power. <laughs> that was a bad thing, especially if we had clients, mm -hmm. customers. Sure. Um, I mean, custom crush clients. So um, we also had to do a fire plan. And so between the class I took at Chemeketa and then the permit that we needed to get from Polk County, which I applied for and, and did the due diligence for, um, we had to have quite a good business plan put together. Mm. And um, there's, there's enormous, uh, you know, bureaucracy, I, and I don't mean that as a, as a bad term, but in addition to making sure we had enough water, like we had to, Perrydale Water uh, was great. They worked with us and said, you've got a half inch water main coming up Morris Road. If you use all the water we expect you're going to, even at small production, your neighbors up the road won't have any showers. So we had to put in 10,000 gallons of um, what, what we call makeup water, mm -hmm. basically storage water so that we were filling the tanks constantly, particularly at night, and then using it out of the, out of the storage tanks so the neighbors wouldn't be impacted. Um, we, we had to satisfy the fire marshal. They look at cubic square footage, and this is a very big building. Mm -hmm. Uh, the enclosed area is 112 by 70, and then the crush pad is another uh, 60 by 70, I think, 30 by 70. Anyway, it's um, a lot of cubic square footage, and she said, you need 66,000 gallons of water on hand to, uh, to meet the fire code. So we, we didn't have that. So what we ultimately did is we dug a trench from the pond down to the corner down here, probably about 
1.2 miles of trenching, I'm, I'm guessing. Maybe not quite, but over a tenth of a mile. Mm -hmm. And we put in a fire hydrant. And, you know, it's, it's just astonishing what you have to do if you're a rural winery like we are mm -hmm. to be um, prepared to actually legally make wine. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Right, lots of infrastructure, lots of detail, the, the drain systems and the concrete and the, there's chiller lines that have to run to keep things cool. Sure. We use glycol. Um, yeah. You know, there's compressed air, hot and cold water, so it's a little bit like a surgery center in a way. You have these various systems that aren't always apparent, but, um, but they have to be there and they have to work and then it's certified as a basically a uh, food processing, food processing plant. plant. So sure. it has to be able to be cleaned just like a food processing deal. Wow, that's a lot. It, w it was a lot, but it was fun. It, I mean, it was fun except for the time when I got arrhythmia this summer and Joe took me to the hospital. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, literally. Because I was so stressed uh, out. <laughs> it was about a year ago when we made this decision. So everything that you see in here including much of the concrete had to be pushed into like an eight month period because we had to harvest sure by september so there was well, a lot yeah. of uh, a lot of stuff going on mother nature was so kind to us because we had a little cool spell at the beginning of september and if we hadn't had that we would have been stuck we'd been making our wine custom crush and i had told the uh, the previous um facility where we'd been making our wine a couple of years that we wouldn't be back but um there were there were just lots of unexpected things i mean another thing that happened is we decided to reinforce the walls to make sure that the shear walls were were strong we passed inspection but our builder said i think that you should do this given how much you're investing in this building and your future plans for it and so every time you turned around um there was you know, something that you hadn't quite expected. Um, and so it was quite a celebration when we finally picked our first grapes this fall. Mm -hmm. And the building, we actually had a temporary occupancy permit uh, just for like three days um, because, because we could, we did it, we did it, but it was, it was an experience that neither one of us, I think, will ever forget. <laughs> yes. So I'd like to uh, um, go back to the wine question and why wine. And, you know, it's, if you study the history of wine, and of course it's been around forever, it was the only safe thing to drink for thousands mm -hmm. of years. Water was not safe. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you, but somehow we figured out 10,000 years ago, uh, along with other aspects of farming and transitioning from hunter-gatherers, we figured out how to make wine, probably initially by accident, because mm -hmm. it does happen literally by accident. Uh, uh, fruit does ferment and turn into alcohol, and yeast is everywhere. In fact, when we make our wine here, we use natural yeast off the grapes. There's nothing that is introduced uh, the way we make our wine. Sure. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, the fun aspect of what we do. You know, wine is a social thing. Lots of people, yeah, I've learned this. I didn't know this, uh, but wine is part of a, of a very nice meal for many people who can, can or do enjoy wine. So 
you know, there are Greek gods of wine, you know, <laughs> Bacchus, and you know, this is, this is something that's been celebrated for thousands of years. But it, it turns out that the people who do this are really nice people. Yes. So it's, yes. it's important to mention that it, it is fun partly because of all the things you have to do. It's also a huge headache to keep everything working. But, but you get to interact with some of the nicest people, especially in the Oregon wine industry. Mm-hmm. So we consider you know, what might be considered competitors to really be friends, because we figure you know, if we all work together, it sort of raises, raises us all collectively. Mm-hmm. And um, the winemaker story would go back to, to uh, um, I guess really to a dinner that uh, I was at. I don't think you were there. I think I was studying for a final exam yeah, at Chemeketa because I, I took I took a bunch of classes you didn't like plant nutrition right, and vine right, physiology and right. I was doing homework and you yeah, were drinking wine. But somehow I got invited to a it was basically a winemakers thing over at the Blue Goat in Amity and a lot of the local winemakers were doing something and. Uh, uh, I guess I had met some winemakers through my work, a, a few of them I had met, in fact, had maintained good friendship with, with uh, a winemaker who started, Russ uh, uh, Rainey started oh, yeah. Evesham Wood. Uh, Wood, and a, a quite well-established uh, vineyard and winery and excellent winemaker. And so I had known him for a while, uh, but he, uh, you know, wasn't available to do this project. But we were at this meeting and just passing around bottles and whatever, and I'm sitting next to... Uh, Jackie Dukes. Jackie Dukes, and, and, you know, and we're tasting all these different wines, and I says, you know, Jackie, this, I, really like, I really like your wine, and, uh, and I may have had a few glasses by then, <laughs> so I could have impaired my judgment, but, no, but I said, you know, of, of all the wines here, and there were some really, I mean, you know, he put eight or ten winemakers with their best wine mm-hmm. out, it can get really good. And the food was good, and, and, and I said, you know, tell me about your wine, who's your winemaker? And he said, she said, well, we're small, but we have uh, Kelly Kidney is our winemaker, and, uh, and I said, well, you yeah. know, Seems like she's doing a good job. So we started investigating because we knew we weren't at the level where we could make the wine. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it turns out that uh, <laughs> Kelly is married to Sterling Fox, who is the vineyard manager dude that, that we had been working with already. So uh, he may or may not have even mentioned that. He probably had mentioned I think he it. told us that his wife made wine, but we, we hadn't really interacted yeah, with so Kelly Yeah, so it was much. sort of a backdoor introduction to, like, hey, could we meet your winemaker? And, <laughs> oh, by the way, she's married to, the, to your vineyard manager person. So that has been uh, fortuitous in a number of ways because, obviously, they work together. And so if we need to pick or if our winemaker says we want to pick Tuesday morning because the chemistries are just right and Sterling can make that happen and we can get the first pick of the day and, and we can kind of do things that uh, and, and now ultimately Kelly is here and bringing mm-hmm. her uh, production here a lot of it so Dukes has their own uh, Dukes family Dukes family they're vineyard. still making beautiful wine with Kelly. yes and and she'll continue to make their wine and and we actually looked at 
the stuff they had when we put this together so that we could have the same equipment and sure. and and that's been that's been a good deal so yes wine is fun and wine introduces you to wonderful people sure so it's all about and even when you're here we've been open as a as a tasting room uh, back around Thanksgiving and really that's the fun part of making it is sharing it with other people and maybe people you've never known walk in and pretty soon you have friends from wherever and you make uh, make connections and they like your wine and walk out with a case of wine and it's like yeah that, that was just that was okay <laughs> we should and do that more often I, it, it's chilly in here in the winter uh, which is why we've got glycol we have glycol to chill in the summer and warm things as needed in the winter um, but but people, I think, got a huge kick out of it. So we were open the weekend before and after Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. when there's obviously a lot of wine tourism. Mm -hmm. And we bought these um, um, teak, like bar things that we set up. And we literally just invited people to come into the winery, which still has, you know, exposed plywood and barrels everywhere and equipment and there's three bays over here that are still gravel because we are figuring out how and when we're going to continue expanding the place. And I think people loved it. I think they loved, even though mm -hmm. it's a little rough and it's a little chilly, I think they got a huge kick out of um, being where the wine is made and having the owners, you know, serving it and talking to them and, and if you know construction and you know much about equipment, I think it's very obvious that what we've done so far, we've done extremely well. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of it. So there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have uh, questions you'd like? Oh, uh, you mean to make me work again? Oh, this has been this has been fun you watching. You asked one. <laughs> off we went. As you were, as you had decided on grapes, and then eventually decided on wine, uh, how did you sort of determine what your roles would be, and and balance that with your with the other work you're doing? Well, for for me, um, it's a, it's it's fun to have something else that's completely unrelated to what I do, and I'm, I'm or have become an accomplished tractor driver, so I can. <laughs> pretty much do all of that work if I have the time and energy, and, and that's fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned how to fly airplanes in the Air Force a number of years ago, and it's a bit like flying an airplane or landing on an aircraft carrier when you're going down. You didn't down. land on carriers, though. Well, <laughs> thank you for pointing that out. I could have, that could have just, that we could have left that there. <laughs> Okay, I have landed on on very very. In fact, you do, never mind. They're tiny. very short, tiny uh, airstrip landing is something you have to practice. Anyway, uh, where did we end up off? You've told oh, me okay. a million times yeah, so you, that it reminds so you of flying a plane. The way you plant a vineyard, you do many things. You're laying it out according to the slope, and and getting. Uh, that's a frog. Our, be, um, and then you, you decide what the spacing of your plants is going to be, which is different for various reasons and equipment and whatever. And our rows are seven feet wide, 
and the, the spacing is basically four feet between plants and you do what's called vertical shoot positioning and, and all this is, you know, pretty complicated and then, you know, someone who falls asleep in a tractor can take all that out and when you're in a tractor, you're on soft ground and you've got things in front of you and things behind you and you really sort of have to pay attention to what you're doing and uh, so you focus a little bit but at the same time you can go into a zone and it's like it's beautiful and you can go out here and drive a tractor around for several hours and and um, it's very relaxing mm -hmm. so and then if something breaks you can fix it mm -hmm. so so that's uh, kind of I guess been more my job is to work together with the vineyard and and uh, and do all of that when I can we know how to prune and, and we could do all the tying and shoot positioning and all that stuff, uh, but we would be way, way too slow and... and, and we have like 21,000 vines now. It's yeah. 15, 56 vines per acre times 15. Um, and, and so that's a lot of vines. You can't, you can't <laughs> do it with that help. Sure. Yeah. So isn't it amazing that, that there are frogs up here and the frogs are coming from the pond. They have to reproduce in water and you find them everywhere. So uh, somehow some, some frog has made it up here into the vineyard and <laughs> into is, the winery, is yeah. uh, singing to us while we're having this interview. If, if it had happened earlier, you could have an entirely different logo on your, on your wine bottle. <laughs> yeah, we could have gone with the frog. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my job is um, everything else. I don't drive the tractor. Um, I do help Joe get the implements onto the tractor, which can be a little tricky. He's taught me how to kick things really, really hard. <laughs> like when he's trying to get the mower on there and it's like, bang, you know. I know what bushings are now and, you know. So, um, but my job is pretty much everything else. So um, I do everything from our legal compliance um, one of the things I'm doing this year for the first time is I have a report I have to make to the TTB. Mm -hmm. And we, we've only been a bonded winery for a year, so it's the first time I've had to do that. Um, like I said, I did all the permitting work for, for this. And the reason, by the way, I say about 15 acres is um, you have to have 15 acres, but, but they will count your um, alleys and your... Uh, turnaround areas. So I literally hired a surveyor to make an aerial, you know, take an mm -hmm. aerial view and and draw a precise boundary line. And um, it actually came out to a little over 17 acres that way. And um, I also clean the bathrooms. I do everything, you know. Um, and I do all of our bookkeeping. Um, I I try to make sure that I am. Yesterday I was in here with Kelly Kidd and I doing a physical inventory of the barrels, mm -hmm. partly for purposes of this report and partly because I need to send invoices to my new custom crush clients and tell them what they owe me for bulk wine storage. So um, I, I, I do it all. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I'm really glad I did is in 2012, the vines had been planted the previous summer, and we needed to do something called two-budding. So you you take the vines that have had a year to grow and get a little, you know, kind of scrawny little um, twig, it looks like, and you cut them down to just two buds. And the idea there is to um, 
discourage them from trying to produce fruit the second year and to and to just get stronger and to build a better root system. And so in January and February, my dad, who was about 80, 81 at the time, and I got out in our little matchy-matchy um, green um, rain gear and went on our hands and knees through about, we didn't do everything, uh, but we did more than an acre worth of two budding. And, and it was miserable conditions. You know, it's cold, it's wet, the ground is gooey. Um, but it was so good to do that. Mm -hmm. And my family actually, uh, my dad's family in particular, had come from South Dakota during the Depression and moved to Oregon and literally picked crops for other people to survive. Lots of people did that. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a six-year-old kid, you know, pulling flax with the rest of his family out here in Oregon. And so I think it was just really special for him to be out here in the mud with his daughter, who now owned a vineyard and helping me make it you know, what it was to become. Mm -hmm. And to this day, when he drinks the Sauvignon Blanc, he'll say, I too butted this. <laughs> <laughs> He's still enjoying it at age 88. You uh, mentioned earlier about, you're talk we're talking about sustainable farming. I'm curious why you chose the sustainable farming path and, and, and uh, what it means to you to farm sustainably. Ooh. Um, yeah, why? I mean, I, I guess it's, it's Oregon, so there's a certain, uh, you know, love of the land that, that comes with living in Oregon, I think, maybe. Uh, I grew up around more conventional farming initially, and, and uh, I think a lot of those kinds of crops is, you know, get the biggest yield you can, mm -hmm. use as many chemicals as you can, and... and uh, and this was down in the desert, so basically you had to find water and, and, and things would grow. But around here, think, you know, it just seems like uh, you want to be good to the land and nourish the land and, and recycle, put stuff back into the soil so that, uh, you know, when you prune everything, you, you chop it up and you learn that those nutrients get recycled. And, and so I think that um, as, as soon as you can, um, you know, reducing the, the chemicals that you use on the land is good. And we have um, uh, the pond that we mentioned and it's surrounded by, I don't know, seven or eight acres of oak. And if you look around us, you'll see bits of oak here and there. It's called white oak uh, woodland or savanna, mm -hmm. depending on the, the spacing. And that's an endangered habitat. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess 100 or 150 years ago, this whole area was oak woodland and was actually kind of managed by the Native Americans. They would set fires and it was, uh, it was the way that they uh, kept the underbrush, kept the underbrush and, mm -hmm. and, and that's all been cut down by, by farmers. And so we uh, had this small forest and it was impenetrable. You couldn't walk through it, it, it overgrowth with, with wild cherries and blackberries and a million things and uh, poison oak and over uh, and then we learned that there was a push to to restore that type of land and right next to us is the um, uh, 
basket slough, which has an endangered butterfly just right over there, and it can only live in this particular environment. So the the state will partner with you to help restore. Mm. It's actually the federal government that we're partnered with. Okay, well, the mm -hmm. federal government, yeah, it's shut down right now. So. <laughs> uh, uh, but the uh, so the government will help you uh, restore that type of woodland so that more natural, more native plants can survive. Uh, get rid of the invasive plants as much as you can, mm -hmm. and uh, and then there's a lupin that uh, Kincaid lupin. Kincaid lupin that only. Uh, this butterfly, this butterfly has to have that to live, and it's an endangered kind of plant. So, so uh, that's what we're doing to try to uh, make these little uh, highways. So eventually, the uh, plants and animals can uh, can survive out here. So you try to be low impact that way. You know, it's uh, a vineyard's not necessarily a natural thing. Mm -hmm. So you try to minimize your impact on everything around. Your vineyard. Sure. Yeah, we have. I remember when we were first planning it. One of our uh, kids said, "Well, that's monoculture. That's bad." And and I said, "Well, it's you know, it's never going to be a big vineyard. And there's all sorts of good things we're doing here too. So, um, yes, we have a partnership agreement with the U.S. Forest Service, who manages the refuge, and um, we have worked closely with Polk uh, Soil and Water Conservation Service." and the Natural Resource Conservation Service. And we've gotten a couple small grants that allow us to bring in the heavy equipment. I mean, we tried to clear it ourselves and it was, it was such a futile effort. I mean, the, the first time we did it, Joe had his chainsaw out there and he's cutting things down and my job was to haul the brush out and I ended up with poison oak so bad because I didn't, I mean, we've got both forms here. We've got the kind that grows like a little shrub on the ground, but we've got the kind that has a, mm. a vine that gets in the trees. And I mean, I got, I got a very bad case of poison oak. So, um, so we've gotten a few grants to bring in heavy equipment to do some clearing. And then um, we've gotten some grants to provide us with uh, native plant materials. And yes, I, re I remember another February where I got a call from um, Mark Bell, who's my contact at Polk Soil and Water. He's been fabulous, but he said, your plants are in and you need to plant them in the next three days. And there was another like monster rainstorm coming. So I get the green, you know, the same old green rain gear out and I get my, you know, my, I don't even think we had our RTV yet then. An RTV is a rough terrain vehicle mm. that we used to run around in and we didn't have that for a while. But anyway, I was in the woods in a rainstorm, you know, planting yarrow and, you know, other such things. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a partnership because they provide us with some help, but we definitely are required to um, provide both uh, time and money and, and, and just care to, to keep it going. And, and I think back to live, um, when I took the class with Al McDonald, Al, as I understand it, was very instrumental in establishing live and he um, had a whole class there were like maybe 10 classes in the term and he had a whole class on the different kinds of certifications you can get organic biodynamic live you know and and clearly he thought live was a good thing so that probably influenced me some but like Joe said we we want to farm responsibly mm -hmm. and I think it's 
yes, the certification just shows the world that you've done it. Mm -hmm. And belonging to the organization gives you the support and encouragement of people of like mind. But it's just good farming practice. Mm -hmm. And the next thing we want to do here is um, live up to now has allowed uh, the use of glyphosate. It's only allowed with very strict limitations in mm -hmm. terms of where you put it and how often. But um, I would like to go glyphosate free. And um, we're actually going to have our 2019 farm plan meeting with Sterling and Kelly today at 3 o'clock. Nice. And one of the things that is on my list is you know, are there any blocks left where we still need to use glyphosate or is this the year that we can finally stop using that? Mm -hmm. and, and eventually we may go organic. We haven't made that final decision yet. I think live actually allows you to use some sprays that organic farming doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm not convinced yet that those sprays shouldn't be used. Mm -hmm. So I figure, you know, if it's a safe, effective tool and you're using it as prescribed, why not? Um, but that, that's something that we're thinking about actively. And there's even aspects of biodynamic farming that I really like. I don't see us probably doing all of it, um, but, but I like the idea of just remembering that your vineyard is part of nature and, and not losing that connection. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you find the expectation from your neighbors and from your potential clients is a part of that? Do you find that your people who are buying your wine expect live certification, expect organic, or is it more done from your own, from your own uh, desires? I think, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that first. I think right now it's still um, mostly our own desire, but we sell fruit because uh, we produce more fruit than we want to turn into wine yet. We're trying to very carefully pace our winemaking to make sure that we don't get a huge inventory. Sure. Um, and and um, most of the buyers want it. To, we're trying to sell very high-quality grapes mm -hmm. to high-quality producers, and they want live-certified fruit. Mm -hmm. And then I think consumers are increasingly aware of it, but I think the consumers are less aware of it than our fruit buyers and just ourselves. Yeah, I, I would agree. If, if, you, if you pour a nice glass of wine and people like it, most of the time, at least around here, they're going to not pay that much attention to it. But, you know, you go to some restaurants and, and you know, people, Portland has a reputation mm -hmm. of saying, you know, what's the provenance of this and that and, and how are the chickens cared for and how are your plants cared for? It's all part of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, trying to be responsible, I guess. Sure. So we've talked a lot about the, the challenges uh, of starting this up, and I appreciate all your candor on that, because we don't get a lot of detailed candor on the challenges of starting a wine business. I appreciate that. I'm curious, uh, you went through the Chemeketa program, you were going through classes. Um, what was it that you were expecting, and what was it that completely caught you off guard in terms of the challenges of, start, of growing grapes? And of the, I mean, you've mentioned some of it, but I'm sort of curious, like, what were you prepared for in terms of, okay, this is, these are, we're going to have to do this, and then what was like, I had no idea this even existed? Pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> there are 10,000 curveballs that you field and face and decisions 
you know, that, like, you know, that uh, saving the business plan to the last of the semester, mm -hmm. uh, if, if you really had to think it all out before you did it, it would be, nobody would do it. Uh -huh. It's like having a baby. <laughs> it it's, really is. It's a We've bit like having that. a baby. Well, I did it. Yeah, you know, you, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, doesn't, you know, you don't really realize what you've gotten yourself into. And uh, yeah, one thing leads to another, and then it leads to ten other things, and then there's more equipment that you have to buy, and then there's this and that, and so it's um, it's a little bit like. Uh, I was going to say it's a little bit like a drug habit, I suppose. You get, you, <laughs> we may end up cutting that part out. <laughs> but, you know, you get, uh, you head down a path and all of a sudden you realize that in order to keep it going, there are all kinds of things you have to do. Yeah, one of the things on the list for the farm plan today is do we need a second tractor? <laughs> yeah, none of them are inexpensive. Either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's always, there's always one more thing to do. That's part of farming, both good and bad, is you, the work is literally never done and you, there's always something else that can or should be done. So you, you just prioritize and you look at your budget and you just say, you know, can we do this? You know, when we did this barn, you know, I came down here and said, I think this is, this would be a good spot. And we kind of stepped it off and it, it was much lower than it is now. We had to build it up quite a bit. And, and then, yeah, maybe we'll just build a barn. And then everybody says, build a bigger barn, build a bigger barn. And I said, <laughs> well, you know, and, and, but we didn't really plan to be sitting here making wine now. This was maybe in our five-year plan. So. Mm -hmm. One thing led to another, and we got enthusiastic. Enthusiastic, <laughs> and some difficulties with a bottling line, and it was like, no, we just don't want to go through that hassle again, and and then so that decision ultimately spins into a very complex business. Sure, but again, I will speak for myself. I think it, I think it applies to you too. Just watching you grin when you're out there in your tractor. I remember I was on this slope that I can see, it's behind the camera, but it's a, it's a fairly steep slope and this was I think two harvests ago and it was toward the end, it was in October and we finally started getting some rain and because of the soil type we have here, it's really wonderful in the summer to get around in. It's pretty dry and, and pretty firm, but you get a little rain and it turns into goop. And, and the tractor's starting to slide, and uh, one of the tires was getting low, and it's raining, and I'm running around with tarps trying to cover the bins as fast as the pickers fill them. And it was kind of a wet, crazy chaos. And I remember standing there looking at it and thinking, this is fun. <laughs> thinking, I spent well, I started practicing law in Portland in 1983, and, and so that was probably 2017. And, and I'm thinking, I would never, ever, ever go back to an indoor job. Um, and, you know, basically dealing with paper and, and courtrooms, and it's just, it's just um, so rewarding. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that is, 
that is still at the at the bottom of what makes us say, oh, sure, let's plant another block. <laughs> <No>? <laughs> sure, we can make the winery happen in 2018 instead of 2020. And yeah, it's it is um, it does kind of grab you and just carry you off into a whole different way of thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. One of my other favorite things that. Um, Joe, Joe is actually a very fine pianist, and we have some very fine musicians in our family, which is why, again, we chose the name we did. But some of the happiest times I've had recently since this building went up is we have an electric piano, because you can't keep a real piano in here with all the humidity and sure. temperature changes, but we have a little electric piano, and Joe will roll the doors up here and play right there in the corner, and I can be walking all over the place and, and hear him playing like the, the Andante movement from Beethoven's Pathétique that is kind of the you know, main song we think of as an inspiration for the name. And I just think, this is heaven on <laughs> earth. Yeah, it's heaven on earth. The, the other thing, not really related to your question, but you, as a farmer, you start to pay attention to the plants and, and also the animals and the birds. You know, a city dweller, you know, doesn't get to look around and see the hawks and uh, the falcons and the goshawks and the northern harriers, and we like those kinds of birds because there's something called a starling, which is actually an invasive species from Europe that is devastating can be devastating to vineyards. So uh, everybody fights bird pressure, it's called, in the, uh, especially in the late uh, summer as the mm -hmm. grapes ripen, you have to either put uh, netting over the bird, over the vines, or you have to try to scare them, or you can hire a falconer to come out and bring their falcons mm -hmm. and scare uh, the starlings away, or you can encourage the native Hawks, which we have a pretty good supply mm -hmm. here. Yeah. So uh, we have mating uh, kestrels that, that live over here, and we watch them. You know, every year they're small falcons. We put a uh, kestrel box up so we can watch them fledge their and little. And the, the northern harriers uh, uh, are here all the time, and it's fun to see. I've seen uh, the bigger bird, the goshawk, come down and literally go down the rows. You know, like a like a jet fighter pipe, kind of like the Star Wars movie where they go down into, you know, and so these birds will go down right down and, and flesh out and the starlings are like, ah, going crazy. And uh, in fact, literally when I came here, one of you might have been parked out there, but when I walked around the corner, uh, uh, a barn owl flew out. So we've got a, an owl that's we've keeping got an us. Owl box of, uh, keep, and they, of course, they keep uh, some of the ground critters uh, partially under check because mm -hmm. there's you know, field mice and gophers, and there's all, all this balance. You've got gopher snakes that look scary, and Karen says, kill the gopher snakes, and I said, well, but then you want, you don't want gophers, so you have to sort I of- I stopped saying kill the gopher snakes. Yeah. I still don't like them, <laughs> but I stopped asking you to kill <laughs> So all these, you know, you look out there and you don't realize there's all kinds of things moving and living and uh, interesting. Sure. Interplay. Sure. Anyway, back to your questions. Uh, you were recently involved in the move to get the Van Duzer AVA, uh, sub-AVA, off the ground. Tell me a little bit about the process and the importance of that to you. 
Well, that's probably mostly a Karen because she goes to the to the meetings. Uh, the the geography here that's important in the classes. You talk about terroir or what makes a unique a site unique, and it's a combination of uh, the latitude and the soil and the aspect of how you lay out your uh, and, and soil and water holding capacity and there's a million a million variables to think about but wind uh, is is a relatively new one at least for this area that's been considered as a separate thing that's important and lots of other areas around here all the way up into Newburgh and and Ribbon Ridge they will all say to some extent well there's these these winds they'll even mention the Van Duzer winds that, that hit the whole valley, Eola Amity will use it in their marketing as well, and they're just right over here, but we're right in the throat of this wind, and if you're out here at like 3 p.m. on the summer, it can be 90 degrees, and within 30 minutes, that wind comes in off the ocean, drops the temperature dramatically, it's hard to have a nice party because all of a sudden <laughs> it's place. cold and windy, and. We always tell people bring a jacket, no matter what it looks like, it's gonna get cold in the afternoon. So it's that variation that um, does a lot of good things for grapes. It, it uh, dries them, so there's less pressure for, for uh, diseases, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it also thickens t uh, uh, the skin thickness, and, and that's where a lot of the flavors are. And, mm -hmm. And so uh, the value of the wind, and we have a, when we first started here, we put in a, a weather station at the top of the hill to measure all these things, the wind and the temperature and even the solar exposure because we were off the grid. And sure. In fact, we're still off the grid on that. The vineyard and the house is all off the grid. The irrigation so, system is powered Yeah, the by irrigation solar. is all off the grid. So, so it was important to, to pay attention, but that, uh, our weather station became the source for, the, for that data for the wind showing how much the wind changes here compared to anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And that was the defining characteristic of the Van Duzer Corridor AVA, which Karen can tell you how that all came together. So I think it was 2011, I'm pretty sure it was 2011, um, when we first started meeting, and I had been hearing some talk about it, maybe from Sterling Fox, I can't remember, and, um, you know, paying attention, it, it, I learned that they were going to have a meeting next door at Van Duzer, and um, Jerry Murray was still the winemaker there. Anyway, I, I walked over there and said, um, you know, hi guys, <laughs> I'd like to you know, get involved in this. And um, Jeff Havlin, Jerry Murray, uh, Dan Rinke from Johan, um, I think um, uh, Andreas from Chateau Bianca, and maybe Dave from Namaste. They might have been the five guys that were in the room that I can remember offhand. Quelos have been there off and on. Yeah, well, there was a, there was a core group and, and we met a number of times, and, um, and then it started growing, and we started having meetings at other places. We did have a meeting at Coelho, and it was actually a really a kind of momentous meeting there, because that was the day that we had a, a rather 
lengthy, spirited debate about whether it was even a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was um, um, one person in the group, um, um, I don't think it hurts to say, I, th I think it was Howard from Firesteed, who no longer actually owns this vineyard here as I understand it, but he felt like it was too soon. Mm -hmm. and, and he had some very good reasons for that. And he put them out there. And then there were other people that were saying it's not too soon, and here's why. And, and actually, um, it, became, it became very, uh, yes, very spirited. And that was the meeting where I think I, one of the other things we realized is that we needed to start getting a little more organized. I'd been on a lot of committees as a lawyer, and I said, okay, we gotta have like agendas, and we need to have um, um, minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm the, the self-appointed you know, note taker for that one, and I'm trying to keep up with, with everything that's going on. But it, it was a really good debate, and, um, and with the benefit of hindsight, I'm glad we started when we did, because it's only been approved. Uh, it will be officially recognized on Monday, January 14th. And I'm sure even Howard, who thought we were starting too soon, didn't realize it was going to take us, you know, six more years or whatever to get there. But um, another thing, another thing that he said, you know, basically is if you if you do this, you need to be prepared then to do something with it. Mm -hmm. And so even though Howard had sort of the minority view that day, I think he brought a lot of really good uh, perspective to it that we're still. Um, benefiting from mm -hmm. because we're having another meeting about the AVA in on Dante's winery here um, next week and and one of the main topics is okay we're officially recognized finally now what are we going to do with that mm -hmm. and so um, I've enjoyed being in the process and I think I've been to maybe all but two of the meetings we have what we call a work group and and it's taught us a lot about each other mm -hmm. and, um, and the effect of, you know, the wind and the things that distinguish us, which is first and foremost the wind and the temperature drops that it creates. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also a fabulous way for all of us to just get to know each other better mm -hmm. and, um, and learn how to collaborate and the importance of that. And, um, and so I'm really excited that we finally have an AVA, and it was a very long time coming. We had to, we had to um, send multiple drafts of the petition in. And then during the um, change from the Obama to the Trump administration, there was a rule moratorium in place, and AVAs are created through a federal rulemaking process, so no rules, no AVA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we actually had our state or no, our, our senators, um, Merkley and um, Kurt Schrader from, from the House of Reps, there were a number of people um, who stepped in to try and help us through some of the um, procedural blockades we encountered. Mm -hmm. But we finally did it. And I think in maybe by virtue of the fact that it took so long and we had a lot of good debate about what we were doing and why, I, I think... Um, I think we will be able to use the Van Duzer Corridor to show consumers mm -hmm. uh, what makes us different, to show fruit buyers what makes us different, mm -hmm. to hopefully get a little bit higher prices, particularly for fruit, um, and to 
and to um, and to work together for the benefit of this relatively small group of wineries and vineyards that are within this AVA. Sure. So what does it mean to you to, to, for the word Oregon or Willamette Valley to be on a wine label? Like, What does it mean to see Oregon, Willamette Valley, now eventually Van Duzer on a wine label? Uh, lots happening in that area recently. Um, uh, I guess from my perspective, uh, I have another business and, and when you have a business and a reputation and you establish a brand, uh, and there's a lot of value in that. Uh, certain other wine brands for centuries have been building reputations, whether it's Champagne or Burgundy. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, in the French government, well, many governments are very, very particular about how things are grown and how they're labeled. Mm -hmm. And you can't call it Champagne if it's not from Champagne, for sure. example. And, and everybody knows that, and uh, so Willamette, or uh, Oregon, has many uh, Appalachians and AVAs now in the south and, and various areas, and they're, they're very good. You know, the Willamette Valley uh, AVA was the AVA of the year, just mm -hmm. a year or two ago in the world. Mm -hmm. so, so the reputation is growing, and... and uh, and there have been people who've tried to cash in on that reputation from California recently, for mm -hmm. example. So, uh, you know, if you put your name on something and you know it's good, uh, you want to be able to protect that. And, mm -hmm. and then there are legal uh, things that maybe Karen could speak to about that as well. Well, I would just say as a, as a girl born in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, it just makes me proud. Mm -hmm makes me proud mm -hmm. of what we can grow here. And I believe that with, I, I, we are believers in the phenomenon of man-made climate change. I think um, just literally, I've spent 61 years now in the Willamette Valley, and um, I've never lived in anything but Salem or Portland. And, and the weather, the, I know weather's different than climate, but the weather's changing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that this AVA is going to get more and more important mm -hmm. for certain varietals, particularly Pinot Noir. Um, and I actually even think that the Van Duzer Quarter, because of our, um, all the stuff we already talked about, is going to become increasingly important because um, even the Willamette Valley is warming up slightly uncomfortably at times. So to have this, we call it the Van Duzer Daily. I mean, it just blows in kind of like a freight train and drops the temperature, you know, 15, 20 degrees some days. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty reliable. So um, I, one, of, one of the things that I'm still tr trying to wrap my head around is, so how many labels are you allowed to have on? And how many labels do you want, even if it's allowed? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure, we'll probably talk about it next week when we meet, about whether we want to put um, Van Duzer Corridor on in addition to Willamette Valley, mm -hmm. if we're allowed to do that. I mean, I think a lot of the labeling laws are sort of in flux right now. Mm -hmm. um, I understand there's gonna be some new legislation maybe even introduced in, in um, Oregon this year on that subject. But um, yes, from a marketing standpoint, um, 
I think we'll always want to have, you know, Oregon and Willamette Valley on there. So to me, it's just a question of whether we add maybe even smaller print, even, you know, Van Duzer Quarter or not. It's, it's hard to say, but I, I, am, I am proud to see that. And I love going into grocery stores when we travel around the country or even around the world and see that on labels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We talked. We do a lot of these interviews, as you know, and we talk to a lot of people. And, and often, what we hear is that this they love all of this, and then it comes time to actually sell the wine, and then the job's not quite so much fun. I'm curious what the challenges you faced in selling wine, especially as a small, a small, a small producer, uh, and if that's been something that you've actually enjoyed or or are looking forward to doing more of, or if it's been uh, as much of a challenge as it is for other people. Yeah, uh, I, uh, we, we talk about this a lot. Um, we do. And uh, yes, some people uh, are natural salespeople. Uh, I guess it all starts with having a quality product because if you have something that really is uh, delicious and, and uh, you, uh, then it's easier to sell something than trying to sell uh, something that you don't believe in. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just a question of saying, you know, having a high quality product and then just uh, uh, marketing is just a whole separate animal that uh, someone like uh, at our size, we have to do uh, direct to consumer sales to really be, mm -hmm. to really make it work. If you go to distribution and, and, and sell our wine to a distributor for, you know, half of the retail price, where we can sell it for retail here, uh, that's a pretty, mm -hmm. uh, pretty easy decision to make. It's just a matter of, you know, making friends with the, with the neighbors and and uh, you know advertising and there's social media and there's word of mouth and and uh, once you're in it, I, you know, I'm probably not a natural, you know social uh, person and, and selling person, but it's fun if you are in a setting like this and, and people are laughing and you got some music and you've got a nice product and it's, it's quite pleasant. So it's just a matter of bringing all that together and, and uh, there are wine clubs to think about and, and all kinds of uh, marketing angles. Everybody has their own Thing. Some people are like, yeah, let's do, you know, dancing, and some people are, let's be very formal, and <laughs> let's have only, appointment only, sit down, nice, you know, tastings, or do we, you know, just take all comers off, the, you know, so there's many, many different ways to run uh, the marketing aspect, and if you go to other areas around here, or you go to Walla Walla, uh, Washington and, and all these different places, you can literally, every single winery is completely different mm -hmm. flavor and that's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. So we just, we're just, in the, we're just newbies at that. <laughs> so we, we've, we've been careful to try not to make more wine than we think we can sell. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, I mean, so one of the big questions is why did you build this big winery, you know, but we d we do expect that we will be able to grow into it, and and we have now brought some other people in to help us, you know, defray the costs mm -hmm. of having this building when we're not using it to full capacity. Um, so we've mostly sold it 
word of mouth. And, and we, uh, up till now, uh, we finally got a really nice website built and we can now do some online sales. Mm -hmm. um, we actually, there's all sorts of licensing things. I mean, the lawyer hat goes on again. We found there's an entity based in California called Vino Shipper and essentially their model is they buy it from us here and we can legally sell it to them. Mm -hmm. And then they have the right to resell it. Mm -hmm. but, but it can look, so if somebody goes to our website and says, I'm gonna buy this, it immediately just links them over to Vino Shipper. Mm -hmm. So that was a good thing, but we've only had that going for a couple of months now. Um, we were really um, delighted with the response we got at Thanksgiving time being open. We thought we would just be open by appointment only, maybe for several years, but we're seriously thinking that maybe starting in May, May is Oregon Wine Month, and mm -hmm. the Oregon Wine Board has a lot of promotional stuff out there. We may open to the public like Friday through Sunday from May through August. Um, we are making wine in September through November, and then, you know, storing it, and we really don't want to mix forklifts and tractors with consumers so we'll probably have to shut down you know the wine the the, the tasting in late summer so that we can move into factory mode sure um, but but yeah I am proud of our wine we have um, really spared no cost when it comes to producing the highest quality fruit we can mm -hmm. I mean, the, the profit margin on fruit is very slender, especially in the establishment years. And I mean, if, if we think something needs to be done or if Sterling suggests something needs to be done, we do it. And, and often I've even gone in and said to him, you know, I want to put lime down again this year, unless you think we shouldn't. And, you know, he'll say, of course, you know, as often as you can afford to do some of these things, it's good. Um, so, so, Really, the, the, the profit comes from taking the fruit you can produce and adding the value of the winemaking. And, and we're very confident with the people that we have working with us, Sterling and Kelly, that when we ultimately bottle something, it's going to be you know, worth a premium wine price and that people will want to buy it. Mm -hmm. So this will be a very interesting experiment if we if we try the may through august mm -hmm. tasting on site and and if we can sell through a lot of wine we'll probably start increasing our production but um i don't like well i've gone to a few restaurants through the years um even when you sell to a restaurant you usually sell to them for maybe you know 66 percent of your retail mm -hmm. price so we've gone into some restaurants partly because we wanted to get our name established out there, um, but we're self-distributed and there are a lot of restaurants that prefer to have sure. a distributor who's going to work with them more regularly. So um, what I like best is, is being here in my space and having a consumer come in and say, I would like to try your wine. And then it's like, yes. <laughs> I have some beautiful wine <laughs> and I would love to pour it for you. And I think of all the people that came through at Thanksgiving time, I don't know if anybody left without buying at least something. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's really gratifying because mm -hmm. they are almost like your kids. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
you like our wine. Thank you. I mean, we know it's good, but there's something about having people drink it and smile and say, I'd like to try that again, you know? And it's like, I don't know, that, that's the part I like. Mm -hmm. it's, I, I think I have a natural, I'm, I like to have parties. I like to have my family over. So, so when, I, when I view it as hospitality versus mm -hmm. sales, it's totally different. Sure. Yeah, I think hospitality is probably the key word. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective. I like that. I like that. So you've talked a bit about starting this for future generations and starting this as a project to pass down the line. So I'm curious where you see Andante in the next five, ten years, and then what you hope happens after that. Uh, Given the fact that we've literally not been able to predict what happens in the next six months, <laughs> and, and we would sitting, if you'd asked that question, you know, a year ago, we wouldn't have seen this. So there are bound to be curveballs that, who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows? You know, life throws you curveballs, you know? Accidents happen, and, you know, you sort of have to. You know, make sure you've written your will, because you know <laughs> what happens. So you, you know, there are all kinds of things that could happen. But you know, our families do come here. Uh, we're not sure that anybody's got the passion or wherewithal to to do this. Mm -hmm. We don't see anybody necessarily stepping up to the plate. But you know, that's to like not, rent it after. We're yeah, gone. that's not yeah. necessarily why we're doing it, you know. I helped my dad build a, what was his dream, you know. He was a blacksmith and when he retired he wanted a blacksmith shop and we found some property and he building a blacksmith shop and he was happy until the day he died, you know, in his 90s going out in his blacksmith shop. So, you know, and we tried to keep that going but the younger generations it looks like probably that's not, somebody's not going to pick that ball up but, you know, vineyards are going to be around and this you know what we started here is probably going to be here forever you know whether it's in our family or somebody else's I mean the the vineyards in Burgundy have been there you know thousands of years and and Italy and Spain and so uh, you know I think Oregon vineyards and wine is definitely definitely going to be around mm -hmm. you know we hope to be around here for 30 or 40 years we'll see and so, should we take a break? Yes, quick pause. Yeah, we're gonna stop it. Thank you. So, okay, so you're talking about sort of, you know, future generations and, and, and uh, where this... Uh... Yeah, what does the future hold? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, Do you have a hope for wh where you guys are in 10 years? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm sure in 10 years we'll be, we'll be right here. <laughs> the barrels will be two or three more Layers high. Uh, we do need a barrel room. That's one of our next projects. And whether it may be in part of this building or we may go into the ground, there's that's a traditional way to do it. Um, people like to be sitting with barrels. It turns out, so you know, we may do something that's you know glassed in or what you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, good question. Five to ten years from now. Um, We'll have more grandkids, so we're, we're having a wedding in a couple of weeks, and our daughter Mary's getting married, and uh, you know they live in Portland, so 
who knows, that might be an option for that family to be, you know, she's a teacher, he's an engineer, uh, they like the outdoors, uh, we see them here a lot, mm -hmm. so who knows, maybe, maybe that family will be spending a lot more time here. Sure. We actually um, are, we're constantly throwing lures out there, literally, I stocked the pond with um, largemouth bass. <laughs> because my my almost son-in-law likes to fish. <laughs> Whatever will get them here. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I would say part of the fun for me about this whole thing has been um, sort of a constant reinvention of who we are and what we're doing. Um, we Joe's dad had a saying that I love, which is, it's better to wear out than rust out. And, and I think that describes a lot of why we're still, you know, we're in our 60s now. And, um, and we're still reinventing ourselves and reinventing what we're doing here. And there have been bumps and, and um, yeah, this winery ended up costing more than we thought it would. Um, but the, the general trajectory has been in a really positive direction. And I believe it will continue that way. Um, we would like to plant a few more blocks. We've planted most of our best um, uh, aspect, mm -hmm. you know, south and east are the best aspects. We've got a little bit more room where we, we could plant. We could plant a little bit more on the west side, except we love our pond so much, we don't want to block our view of it. Um, we're going to talk with Sterling today about maybe a few other, like, uh, region two varietals, um, like Sauvignon. Uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are region one, which is the coolest climates, mm -hmm. but um, Sauvignon Blanc um, is region two and it's thriving here. So maybe there's a few other things that we could plant for fun. Um, it, we've planted some Aligote and some Gamay mm -hmm. um, in the last year. They're not producing yet, but um, we'd like to build uh, an equipment barn so that some of the less beautiful things that you need for a farm are not stored in the winery. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, my, so my ultimate dream, I think, would be to um, maybe even replace, we have a little um, manufactured home on the top of the hill called an idea box. I keep gazing up there, not at the camera. And um, it, it, was, it was a fabulous shelter for us and it may ultimately be the only thing we ever have and we'd be satisfied with that. But I have this vision of, of a small house, maybe with two bedrooms instead of just the one we have now with a wraparound porch and just being able to sit there with my kids and grandkids and guests and just look out from the top of the hill, you know, 360 all around this and just say, yeah, look what we did. That would be a really good way to get old, which I don't intend to do for 30 well, more years. Sure. <laughs> the future. Sure. What about the, we've talked a little bit about this already, but what about the broader Oregon wine industry? Where do you see it going? You're, you're, fair, you're relatively new to it, uh, but what do you see happening in the next five, 10 years or even further down the road in, in Oregon in general? I think there's just all sorts of positive things to happen. Mm -hmm. um, I really do. I, I, I think Oregon has um, maintained this sense of collaboration between growers. 
um, truly a lot of our social circle now is people in the same industry mm-hmm. and or people who love wine and love it when when we do something here and we've got a mix of wine lovers and wine growers you know that are all getting together um, I think that the Oregon Wine Board is uh, a fabulous, very savvy um, organization that obviously has state backing mm-hmm. that's that's doing a great job of marketing Oregon wines. We belong to the Oregon Wine Growers Association, and I think that um, the the it's a lot of the same people sort of involved in both sides of that. but um, I think we've got really good people that are trying to develop a vision of where Oregon wine should go and and then are helping us get there. Um, I, I, I am just awed sometimes by the people who started this in, you know, I mean, if you look at sort of the, the real sort of, I, I realize people were making wine here before, but, you know, David Lett uh, mm-hmm. in the 1960s, and you think what, what it took to have the vision to come here in the 60s or the early 70s and say, I, I can make wine here. <laughs> um, it turned out I went to college um, with a girl whose family was one of those pioneer um, um, Tualatin um, oh, Valley. Bill Foley. Yes. And... Um, I got to go visit their vineyard in probably it would have been seventy-seven or eight oh, wow. as as a youngster, and and thinking, wow, this is really interesting. This is really cool. And now here I am, a <laughs> vineyard owner too. So, um, I, I I think that we have nowhere but you know, it's it's just clear blue sky and opportunity out there for Oregon wine. Mm-hmm. I feel really encouraged that we're in an industry that has a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, it seems like wine is here to stay and as long as people are buying and drinking wine and enjoying wine, Oregon's got a lot to offer. You just look right, you just look around, you're just like, you know, that could, every, everything around here could be, all of the hills, mm-hmm. There's it's vastly undertapped, mm-hmm. uh, but it takes, you know, money and energy, and, and you know, it's it's it'll be interesting. But you drive, you know, in France, Spain, through those beautiful uh, areas, and if you've got a place that makes good wine, pretty soon the or Napa, you go to these places now, and and the value of the land goes up, and everybody's putting in. I guess there's downside to that too, you know, because uh, a lot of what we see here is is beautiful farmland, and and it, it's nice the way it is also, but, <laughs> but there's a lot of potential mm-hmm. for Oregon in this area and all the, the whole state. So if our kids don't end up, I mean, we have five kids between the two of us, and if our kids don't end up wanting to continue this after we're gone, not that we plan to be leaving soon, um, then, you know, probably the vineyard would be sold. Mm-hmm. But we're also pretty confident that um, what we've invested here is not going to be lost. Mm-hmm. That it that it's it's a really solid way to invest. It's something that keeps our, you know, minds growing and our bodies strong. I mean, I was a history and English major, and I am now taking like science of winemaking and 
you know, trying to go through his old chemistry books, you know, in my, my daughter's high school chemistry book, you know, <laughs> so that I can understand what is happening in, you know, and, and it, it's just, it's, it's wonderful, because, yes, it's been hard in many ways, but, but it's, it's exciting, and, and we feel absolutely very much alive, and like there's, you know, lots to still do, and, I remember as a kid, when I saw people in their 60s, I thought, oh, they're almost dead, you know? <laughs> I mean, you just, you just, don't, you just don't feel like, like there's any boundaries. There's always something more to do and something more to learn. And if we have to sell it someday and our grandkids, you know, get to go to college on what we've done, <laughs> oh, so be it, you know? That, that's like Joseph's. We have no idea what the future holds in terms of the next generation, but... Maybe one or two of the kids will say, we'll carry it on. All businesses have risk and downsides. And one thing we haven't talked about, which I guess surprises me because Karen's an employment attorney, mm -hmm. is employ, uh, employees mm -hmm. and labor mm -hmm. is a real concern in vineyards because our vineyard is all by hand. It's, it's a hand uh, pruned and a lot of hand labor is required. Um, it's all hand-picked. Mm -hmm. Hand-picked. Now there are mechanized ways to do it, for, and many large, larger companies are doing that. But, but that's always a, a question that, that could be limiting here uh, uh, with labor and, and immigration policies. There's lots of things, lots of question marks there. And then just the headaches of, of well, headaches and rewards of having employees, because eventually we have to hire people to do things that we can't do to keep up, so so that will be a a, a potential uh, thing we have to sort out too. Mm -hmm. Is how do we uh, and the whole state, you know, how do how do you uh, employ people mm -hmm. to do what we do? All the questions that I have planned for you, uh, you obviously answered many of my questions before I asked them, which is always ideal. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Anything I should have asked that I didn't? Any final thoughts? Ooh. It's uh, open mic, you know. Yeah. Uh, what kind of wine do you like to drink and how much would you like to take <laughs> home with you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's cut to the chase. You said marketing. Uh, Oh, that's a good. That's a good question. I don't know, Karen. What do you have stories you needed to tell or something? No, I I would say for myself though, it's been it's it's been um, hard but good. Mm -hmm. I would do it all over again. I would maybe have done a few things slightly differently, but I would do it all over again. And I'm excited about the future. Good. Good. Yeah, it's good to hear. I guess the the circling back to where we started, the irony of of a kid who grew up in the desert in a Mormon family mm -hmm. is now a wine owner maker in Oregon. Uh, nobody, including my family, most of whom are Mormon, would have seen me sitting here, sure. and they sort of like you know they sort of roll their eyes and and uh, and they still accept me as part of the family, but it's, um, it's, it's an odd turn mm -hmm. 
and uh, it's much more fun <laughs> from my perspective than, than uh, some of the other alternatives that they uh, like to pursue. But um, yeah, so I guess answering what is down the road, who knows? I mean, I didn't, we didn't see ourselves here, so um, it'll be fun to see where the, where the next 10 years take us. Sure. Good, excellent. It's almost as strange as having a wine archive at a Baptist school, so it's, uh, it's, it fits, you know. It's, it's uh, very Oregon. Thank you both so much uh, for your answers and for your time, and uh, we'll go ahead and stop our recording. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.